Richard Serrett's Strange Planet, following the truth wherever it leads, exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites, revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality, coming to you from the Great White North and his studio beneath the stairs. Here's Richard. And welcome to another episode of Strange Planet. Thanks, as always, for sticking me in your ear. And if you'd like to get deeper into Strange Planet, I would uh, strongly urge you to check out strangeplanet.supportingcast.fm. And uh, there are three monthly subscriber uh, tiers to choose from. Pick the one that's right for you. Strangeplanet.supportingcast.fm. Lots of bonus material for you there. All right. The... uh, the spring and summer of uh, 1985, a very harrowing time in uh, L.A. County and surrounding environs. There was a serial killer on the loose. Suddenly you had people uh, who never owned a gun buying a gun. Uh, there was a series of uh, burglaries that ended up, uh, well, deadly burglaries, as it turned out. Attempted murders, 13 murders, 5 attempted murders, uh, 11 sexual assaults. Uh, a number of, uh, as I say, burglaries, all committed by one individual, a monster, Richard Ramirez, who was dubbed the Night Stalker. And we're going to talk to the man who is responsible for solving the case. He is a uh, retired lieutenant with the uh, L.A. County Sheriff's Department, 38 years in law enforcement, 26 of those years in homicide, six years as a supervising lieutenant, uh, 400 homicide cases he worked. That's just, that's just uh, mind-boggling, 400 homicide cases. And uh, he's responsible for taking Richard Ramirez, the night stalker, off the street. Lieutenant Gil Carrillo, welcome to Strange Planet. How are you? Well, I'm doing fine. Thank you very much for having me. And we should also point out the uh, that, that Netflix series, the Night Stalker series, uh, really was built around around you uh, right from the outset. It was decided that they were going to sort of tell this story through the eyes of Lieutenant Gil Carrillo. What, do you, what are your thoughts um, now looking back at that series? Well, it, uh, number one, uh, the series was far beyond my comprehension. I, I didn't realize how good it was going to come out. I enjoyed it. It was truthful. Uh, it was uh, well done. Director Tiller Russell uh, told me in the beginning what he wanted to do and he started to tell me, and I said, I don't want to know what you're going to do. You're the, you guys are the professionals. I'm just the talking head. And I don't want to see any edited cuts. I don't want to see anything. I'll see it when it comes out. And he did it. And he's quoted later on uh, after it uh, was dropped that there's make no doubt about it. His storyline was about a young Hispanic investigator who was new that nobody believed in and he never gave up he fought the fight he won and i was uh ultimately uh it was ultimately showed that i was correct from the very beginning just take a moment uh and tell a little bit of your story how you became a lieutenant working homicide for the la county sheriff's department where did you come from how did you get there well it, it all started uh I wasn't so good. I was 17 years old. A cop took me home, told my parents I'm from get off the streets. They really ended up dead and dead or in prison. They did. They signed. I ended up in a place called Vietnam. 
I learned a new appreciation on life. I had new visions. New, all I wanted to do was become a cop and give back what that cop gave to me. And that was save somebody's life like he had saved mine. I also wanted to go to college. It started. And because I became a cop, my natural course was to work in gangs because I had a gang background and I could relate to the guys and things went well there uh, at a very young age. It normally takes 15 years minimum to get into sheriff's homicide. It took me 10, uh, nine and a half years. And they called up, called me up because of my expertise. I got to go up there and I was just so intrigued. Uh, I immersed myself into the business and realized early on, it's not a job, it's a lifestyle. Uh, I was up, uh, you work back then we had these things they used they're so antiquated they call them beepers and i had a beeper and they beat me and they said you're up you got a murder on march 17th 1985 8510 village lane and that was the first one in the modern series and you go out at every murder and you don't know if it's going to be a serial killer until you get out there and you start looking and things started looking strange right from the right from the get-go uh to me and I was the only one that was on it from beginning to end, and I was able to stick with it. No, no murder is routine, obviously, but you know, the, the, you in your business, your line of work, you have kind of a vernacular and an expression. You would call this. You, I mean, you thought this was. I think the quote is another routine Monday murder. That was uh, St. Patrick's Day, nineteen eighty-five. Just yep. take us back to that that first routine Monday murder. Give us the the particulars. Well, you go out there and they give me the call and they tell me I've got one decedent and I've got one in the hospital, uh, no wits. So I go out there and it's a routine mundane murder. You're just getting waking up, hey, go to work. So I go to work. The thing that was so different uh, about this one was when I was, it was Maria Hernandez who survived, Dale Okazaki who met her untimely demise inside the, her uh, condominium. Maria Hernandez had just been, arrived home and she had just keyed the door entering the garage to her condominium proper. She keyed the door, opened it up, hit the button to close the garage door that gives eight seconds before the light goes out and it turns pitch black. When all of a sudden she heard a sound, it was an intentional sound. Somebody hit the roof of a parked car that was inside the garage of Dale Okazaki's car. And that made her instantly turn around. She looked and she saw Richard coming at her point shoulder, stargazed eyes, disheveled look, and his gun's pointing right at her head. She puts her hands up in front of her. He pulls the trigger, hits her in the hands. She goes down to the ground. The lights are out immediately. Richard will later tell me he thought he was dead. He says his ears were ringing. It was pitch black and he didn't know what was going on. The door had already been unlocked. He pushed her body out of the way, went inside, Maria Hernandez, of course, didn't die. She had a pair of keys in her hand. The bullet hit the keys and entered her hand, her right hand, and never exited. So she jumped up, hit the garage door opener, and went running down the alley behind the uh, garage, and she heard a second shot. Now, as you're saying this, watching it on TV, you're running. You're saying, run, Maria, run. Well, she ran around the front side thinking she had to get back inside to help out her roommate. When she went around the front, Richard came out the front door. He was just as surprised to see her. She was just as surprised to see him. They played cat and mouse around a little Volkswagen that was parked right there in front of the place. 
She finally disgustedly threw up her hands. I'm sorry for that. Let me turn That's off okay. my That's all right. Uh, she, she disgustedly turned off her hands and said, don't shoot me again. You've already shot me once. And he put his he put the gun down by his side, turned around, and walked away. Wow. I had the advantage of um, the knowledge that I gained that I had to work this case was given to me by Professor Robert Morneau, retired FBI agent teaching in Cal State LA at the time. And I took two semesters of advanced criminal investigation pertaining to sex crimes. He says that there are those that will point a gun at you and not to kill you, but because they want to see the fear in your eyes. And that is kind of like foreplay to sex, watching the fear. Just as you look, you look at so many people that go see scary movies, you know, the excitement of seeing the fear. Well, that's what he said. And that's what I saw. And when she didn't, when she wasn't afraid the second time, why didn't he shoot her? She's the only living witness. And he just put the gun down, didn't run, he walked away. There was something different about the case from the very beginning. We learned uh, the next day, an hour after my murder, uh, about a mile's crow's flight away, uh, Silen Yu had been drug out of a car. She had been driving. The Monterey Park Police Department got calls from informants that said, hey, there's a boyfriend-girlfriend fight. But what had happened was he had been following her. She stopped, put it in reverse. She panicked, backed into a parked car and was stuck. He then went up, grabbed her and pulled her out of the car and shot her twice. And why, if he just wanted to shoot her, why didn't he just shoot her right there? Uh, he wanted to see fear. We also, going back to the first one, De Kazaki, uh, we found contusions in the back of her head at autopsy, which indicates he had, she had been hit in the back of the head first. Well, she is shot. And she shot right in the forehead. She put her hands on a countertop, lifted her head above the countertop because it was quiet to see where he was. He was on the other side of the countertop with a gun waiting for her. And as soon as she did, he saw the look, he shot her. Now, that was not your ordinary routine mundane murder. And that's what piqued my interest in the very beginning. The um, One of the challenges in this case was this murderous rampage uh, is taking place across something like, is it 13 different jurisdictions? Multiple jurisdictions. Multiple jurisdictions. I, I can't recall how many uh, because a lot of the jurisdictions, uh, Arcadia is an example. They are an incorporated city. They have their own police department, but they contract through the sheriff's department to conduct their homicide investigations anyway. Right. Cities like Monterey Park, they have their own police department, they're incorporated, and they conduct their own investigations. Okay. And then you've got Monrovia, Rosemead, Sierra Madre, sure. the city of Los Angeles. Yes. Um, so because of that, it's decided that you need a task force. Um, how did you how did you get selected to be, you know, sort of the you and, and um the Italian stallion Frank Salerno get uh, chosen to, to be the, the lead guys on the task force? The task force really wasn't formed until almost July. Uh, the beginning, these murders were going on. People did not believe there was one man doing it. They did not think it was a serial killer. 
And uh, quite honestly, Salerno wasn't in belief that there was a serial killer. That was a tough, uh, tough thing to swallow. And I understand when you talk about FBI agents that do criminal profiling, uh, they do it all documented on criminal history. Nobody, no one individual, nobody in criminal history had ever been documented doing the things that I was alleging. And so therefore, there wasn't a big belief. And it wasn't until there was enough physical evidence to show that one man, one shoe, we had a shoe print, uh, uh, the Avia footprint model 440. I can tell you that January 9th, 1985, 1,356 pair of those bad boys entered New York from Taiwan for distribution. One pair ended up in the city of Los Angeles, while six ended up in the state of California. So when we can show that footprint at various locations, it's starting to get better for us. And uh, we're able to put enough together to where finally Frank, the Italian stallion, got on board and said, yes, we do have a serial killer. And that's when the task force started. Uh, how long did it take you to put all of that, um, that, those, uh, that, all that data together on the Aviva shoe? Uh, that took some time because we did, once we had enough of via footprints, then we sent, uh, somebody from our crime lab, working in the physical section, the gentleman by the name of Jerry Brooks, we sent him up to, uh, Oregon to meet Mr. Jerry Stubblefield, who held the patent on the shoe. Uh, he came back, gave us some samples, gave us some patents. And then we told, we got two investigators that were on their day off, uh, John, Sergeant John Yarbrough and sort of Bobby Gann, they were out golfing, pulled them off the golf course and said, find this shoe. They were upset. They said, where do you want us to start? We said, start at the East County line and move West until they did find the shoe where the shoe was sold. Uh, getting back to that, that's just a remarkable, a remarkable police work. Uh, getting back to the task force though, and um, in terms of every organization has egos and how do you manage all of these different jurisdictions, all of these um, detectives and, and um, so forth uh, and keep them all sort of all on one side. I mean, did, I'm guessing each one of them had their own suspects and they're saying, no, 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 it's not him. It's this person. Exactly. Uh, with the smaller agencies uh, that have their own homicide bureaus, it was difficult. And what we just decided was everybody would work their own cases and we would just exchange information. Uh, with LAPD, they have a large department. Uh, the two guys in charge of leading their, their side of it, Mr. Leroy Orozco and Paul Tippin, great guys. We first thing we said was, let's go, let's sit down and have a drink and let's talk. And they said, here's the rules. We don't really care who arrests the guy. We don't really care about our executives. We don't care about publicity. We don't care about anything. All we promise is let's exchange openly information. We work together. We do whatever it is. And every day, every day, we met either via telephone or in person to exchange information, exchange data. That way we can keep on top of things. They were very, it was a great working relationship with them. We didn't care what happened above us. I'm a, I'm a baseball nut. And um, true or false, one of the jurisdictions 
they had in mind that Richard Ramirez was Mariano Duncan, former infielder with the Dodgers, and I think he also played with the Philadelphia Phillies at one point. Yes. I got his baseball card. (laughs) Yeah, that was a clue that actually came into the Sheriff's Department. And uh, we had guys that were working, and unfortunately, uh, they dubbed themselves the Clue Clowns because never underestimate the scorn of an angry woman. More women were calling in their ex-husbands and ex-boyfriends, and people were calling in. And with a composite drawing that had been put out, the guy had curly hair, thin, tall. The Dodgers were in San Francisco at the time, and that was the time that William and Emily Doy got killed. So somebody called it in and said, I think it's Mariana Duncan. The Dodgers were in town, and somebody got killed up here, and it looks just like him. Was, he, was, was, he, ever questioned? was he ever questioned? Uh, no. No, we, we logged every, every uh, clue that came in, and we just put them in no order of priority. Just because he was a famous baseball player, he just went into the stack of clues, and we ran down every clue to make sure that none of them was overlooked. Lieutenant Carrillo, we'll take a quick timeout, come back and uh, discuss further the, uh, the solving of the Night Stalker, the Richard Ramirez case. Back with more in a moment. Ladies and gentlemen, the captain has turned on the fasten seatbelt sign. We're now crossing a zone of turbulence. Please return your seats and food trays to their upright position and make sure your carry-on luggage is safely stowed. You're about to leave everything you know behind. This is Richard Serrett's Strange Planet. Strange Planet. And we are back with Lieutenant Gil Carrillo, who solved the Night Stalker, the Richard Ramirez uh, case, uh, who died in uh, prison before his uh, date with the gas chamber. Uh, 13... 13 murders, uh, let's see, what are the, uh, five attempted murders, 11 sexual assaults, 14 burglaries, 53 separate crimes, and uh, you got a conviction on each and every count. Uh, that's pretty unprecedented, I would think. I was, uh, I was happy when it came, came back with the first verdict. Uh, I just started crying. Because I knew if we had that one, the rest of them were going to come back. And so it's like all the work, all the name calling, everything that went on because it was, and I understand why they didn't believe me and believe in me. I was young. I had this theory. Nobody had ever done anything like this. And so now uh, I was finally proven correct. And it was a great feeling. I just started crying. And when you say no one had ever done this before, you mean in terms of putting a profile together, not based on past criminal behavior, but just based on the evidence. Well, what he was doing, I'm yeah. they don't have anybody documented. Nobody's been documented since then. I mean, he was using his uh, murder weapons, shod foot, knives, machete, guns, different caliber guns, manual strangulation, ligature strangulation, sexual assaults. The victims raged in age. There was pedophilia going on, not only girls, but boys. So there was a cross of everything. Uh, it didn't make a difference what it was. it was. It was different. And so nobody's done it since. I'm glad. Um, 
So you've got this task force and uh, you're showing up at um, a, a, a burglary that obviously ended in someone's murder. What is the press thinking? Because, you know, you're trying, you're not trying to, you're trying not to alarm people and say that there's a serial killer on the loose. And, and um, how are you keeping the press at bay when they see you from LA County showing up outside of your jurisdiction at a, uh, at a burglary? Well, fortunately, fortunately for us, uh, we didn't go to burglaries. We only went to murders or assaults. So, uh, and we're not required to report to the news media anything less of a murder. So they don't know if we're going out on a burglary or what we're going to. Uh, I'll give you an example. Uh, June of 28th, the murder in Arcadia, Patty Lane Higgins. Uh, we were out there, the news media showed up and the news media runs in, uh, as long as I've been around him, you know, at one time, if it was gang related murder that I'm working on, they'd come on. I said, what do you got? It's a gang murder. Okay. Don't even take the cameras down guy. Let's just get out of here. It wasn't important. Uh, so routine mundane murder was important. So you get out there and I've got a 32 year old school teacher that's killed. Okay. Well, that's, that's kind of newsworthy. So they're out there, they're asking it's in the city of Arcadia, but Arcadia contracts through us. So it was no, no big deal. Now, a couple of days later, on July the 2nd, we're back out in Arcadia at the murder of Mary Cannon. And they show up and they're saying, hey, what did Gil, what are you and Frank doing out here again? And we just told them, hey, look, this is right down the street from the murder we had the other day. They said, since it's so close, we just go ahead and take it for them. So it was no big deal. July the 5th. That was the night that we went out to the house of Whitney Bennett, who ended up surviving uh, the assault. And that was fine. Now, two days later, July the 7th, we go back out to Monterey Park. And now the news media is saying, whoa, something's going on. You guys are popping up all over. And that's when the, they went into a media frenzy. Uh, who dubbed Ramirez the Night Stalker? Uh I don't know. You know, the, the news media would call us. It was it was probably the examiner or somebody from the examiner at the time. They call us up. They get you on the phone. They said, hey, have you given him a name yet? And, yes, I have. What are you calling him? Suspect. And we, do. we wouldn't give him a name. The news media always gives them the name. And that's where it came from. Came from the news media. They they called him the Midnight Prowler, the Midnight Intruder. They, they had a few names for him. Richard's the one that indicated he liked, he used the word Night Stalker himself. Oh, he liked that, did he? Yeah, yeah, he did. How closely, uh, would you later discover how closely he was sort of following this case in the media, his, you know, the, his horrible deeds? Well, there was no doubt in my mind he was following in the media. Did you, you know, there's, uh, it's, an irrational act to commit murder. It then becomes very rational because then you become the suspect and you got to learn how to hide and how to defend. So you want to stay ahead of your adversaries. So Richard was city of Monterey park early on in the case of uh, William and Emily Doy on May the 14th of 1985. Uh, there's a blood curdling phone call that makes the news, which really the news loves it. Please help. I've been shot. Well, those are the last words he spoke. And Emily Doy lived, poor lady. She had been a surviving victim of a stroke already. She was at the hospital. 
Well, that was the last time Richard left any phone intact in any residence he went in. So we knew he was following the news. He knew the first time he saw us, he knew who I was and knew who my partner was. And knew all about my partner. Richard was well-read. And he knew that my partner had worked on the Hillside Strangler. And to Ramirez, that was exciting to him. Because he could tell us, he says, I've got an eagle that will fill this room. And I can tell you anything you want to know about serial killers from the time the Romans fed the Christians to the lions to modern-day serial killers. Wow. Um, the Hillside Strangler, that ended up being two culprits, was it? two murderers, wasn't it? Yes, they were cousins. Wow. How, um, how soon did you get a, a, a police sketch of Ramirez? Well, after the first, uh, first murder of Dale Okazaki, we were transitioning. They had something at that time. Remember, this is a long time ago. We had these acetate layovers. They called them identikits. And it was clear acetate with lines on them. You lay one over another. And then you'd put it like on an overhead projector. And you'd see it on a wall. Well, what you do is you put it together until they thought it looked like, hey, that kind of looks like him. Put it on a Xerox machine. Then you'd get copies. That's what we were using. We used this time for the first time with Maria Hernandez. We sent a staff artist and said, hey, go on out there, sit with her, draw out what she describes to you. Well, just a couple of days after her, her demise, the murder of Dale Ogazaki, I had the hand sketching rendition from uh, our staff artist of Ramirez, rendered by Maria Hernandez. A fingerprint guy who happened to be in the station who used to use an identikit, he says, hey, Gil, hold that thought. He went out to his car and he brought out an identikit photo or something he had put together in February. And it looked like they were done by the same person. Wow. One was identikit. The other one was a free-handed staff artist rendition. And descriptions were the same. And that was on the attempt kidnapping of a little girl. Ah, yes. We need to talk about the, the child abductions that were happening uh, at the same time. Um, was it, was that... Was that the um, the case that that connected the Avia shoe connected the child abductions to the murders and the attempted murders? No, the child the shoe actually uh, came with uh, Maria Sandoval, Northeast Division LAPD. Uh, she was kidnapped and released and left, and there in the wet cement was an Avia footprint. And Montebello Police Department, who's a, their own incorporated city, their own police department. I had a friend over there, Dan Hibbert, said, hey, Gil, I think I found something that's connecting your cases. I think you might be interested. Because we had seen it at the Zazara murder. And now we see it at a child abduction. And we have this drawing. So things are starting to, start to, start to line up. Tell me about this um... I think she was six years old from Arcadia, this little girl that was abducted. Um, and um, obviously an, a valuable eyewitness and, and uh, you interviewed her. So, yes. A, such an incredibly brave and smart young little six-year-old. Tell me about her. She was the sharpest, sweetest, cutest little six-year-old I'd ever met. 
the first when she was kidnapped, she was kidnapped on the 26th of June. We were out in Arcadia on the 28th on a murder. And Sergeant Bransma from Arcadia Police Department said, hey, I'm working on a kidnapping, a child abduction. And she told us a little bit about it. And I said, well, okay, well, that's plenty. That, that's good. But we're up to our next alligators right now with murder stuff. You continue to work your stuff. If we make a suspect, we'll bring it all together and we'll see where it goes. Well, that's what we did. He was arrested. We have a live lineup. The little girl was taken to the live lineup. Her parents are there and they had her at a little table. She's drawing like any little girl. And they said, sweetheart, we'd like to introduce you to somebody. And she turned around and she looked up at me and she said, oh, I know him. That's Gil Carrillo. I've seen him on the news. He's working on the Night Stalker case. Wow. She had no idea she was part of the Night Stalker case. And I'm saying, holy Jesus, I've got kids who go to college who won't watch the news. And this was such a sweetheart. We took her inside at the end of the lineup. All participants were asked if you would like to see a closer look up. Then you look up over here and you'll take a walk up. If you stop in front of one, you have to stop in front of all of them. If not, get to the end of the wall, turn around and walk back to your seat, talk to no one. She was the first one in line. She got up, she walked up, came back, took her seat. Once it was all done, said, are there any questions? Her little hand went up and said, do I write the word two or number two? Because he was number two. Mm. Said, sweetheart, whatever you'd like. She was that sharp. Now, this is uh, 1985. This is September of 85. March in January of 86, we're getting ready to go to preliminary hearing. We decided, let's go back and talk to this little girl. She was the best kid witness that we had. And we had about four or five kitty cases we could have charged him with. And we went down to her house and her mother was waiting for us and she said, oh, come on in. She said, have a seat. She's a little bit apprehensive, but she knows she's ready to talk to you. Mommy walked her in, holding her hand, sit down on a couch, and she jumps up on her lap. Little Anastasia whispers in Mommy's ear, says something, and then puts her head down in embarrassment, starts giggling. And her mother said, looks at me and says, she wants you to know that she remembers you the best because you remind her of her teddy bear. And it was, it was just a sweet moment uh, for the day. And the DA that was with us, Phil Halpin, said, sweetheart, uh, you know, we're here to talk about that day. We took you into this big theater type room and you picked somebody. She says, yes, I remember going and I remember picking number two. And so now we're concerned. Is somebody coaching this girl? And he right away said, well, why do you say number two? Why do you remember that? So why is it so important? She says, because I knew it was him the minute he walked out, but I knew how important this was and how absolutely positive I had to be. And I'll go to court and testify if it means keeping him locked up so he can't hurt any other little girls like he hurt me. And I'm sorry, my eyes just started tearing up. I said, excuse me. I got up and I walked out of the room. Uh, my partner was about 30 seconds behind me. Alpin was about a minute maximum behind him. We met in the kitchen and Alpin just said, fellas, what do you say we dismiss all the kitty cases? You know, we've got him on all the murders. We proved nothing other than showing people how vile he was. And we just agreed, amen. No need to put the families or the children through this again. So we never, uh, we never brought it up again. I can't imagine a, a six-year-old 
um, willing to go into that lineup and walk right up to the person who abducted her, look him right in the eye, uh, just bravery beyond all comprehension. Uh, we'll take another time out. Lieutenant Gil Carrillo, the man who put Richard Ramirez behind bars. Back with more in a moment. The truth will set you free. 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 But first, it will really tick you off. Welcome back to Richard Serrett's Strange Planet. Uh, perhaps you've seen the Night Stalker series on uh, Netflix, and uh, that whole series based on my guest, Lieutenant Gil Carrillo. 38 years in law enforcement, 26 in homicide, 400 cases, homicide cases. Uh, and um, he was the one that um, figured out all of these murders that were taking place in the spring, the early, the winter, spring, summer of uh, 1985 in LA County and uh, surrounding environs, plus the burglaries and the sexual assaults and the, uh, the child napping, the child abduction, all because of one man, Richard Ramirez. Um, getting back to the, um, the targeting of houses and, you know, people are looking for connections and patterns um, was there a pattern with the types of uh, houses that he was targeting? No, no, no not at all. He, he laughed, he scoffed, because the news media was putting out that they were yellow houses near freeways. Well, in Los Angeles County, you can't get too far away from a freeway. And at that time, uh, most houses were of a beige or neutral tone. And he laughed. He, he thought some paint company had put that out just to sell more paint. No, there was no, he just didn't go into, he went into nicer uh, areas and he didn't, he stood away from the lower income areas. And, uh, and do we know why? Yeah. In his words, through an informant, there was better booty in the other houses. And I don't mean posterior ends. I mean, the stuff he was getting. Right. And, and he liked the Asians, he said, because. And his, they had better booty, and he didn't think the cops cared about Asians. Interesting, interesting. Um, just because we're, we, I mean, we could talk for hours, obviously, and we're, we don't have a lot of time, but his apprehension is an incredible story. Um, you know, I was thinking of uh, the way he was apprehended on the street uh, by, by citizens, and I was thinking of the Kitty Gervaisi case and people talk about the bystander effect and, you know, when Kitty was being brutally raped and murdered and she cried out and there were dozens and dozens of people that could have helped and did nothing. They call it the bystander effect. Um, and yet in this case, we didn't see that. I mean, really saw some real heroism. Talk to me about uh, well, Ramirez's it, apprehension. It, it was a little, it was a combination of them catching him, him giving up. He had been running for about two miles. He ran across the five freeway, all, all 10 lanes of the five freeway, over sound walls, over fences, through backyards. He tried to carjack a lady's car in the neighborhood. She screamed. Her husband grabbed a pipe, ran out to save her, hit him in the head. The neighbors heard the screaming. They looked out. They see their neighbor fighting this guy. Richard then turns and starts running. But, I mean, he's exhausted. He's been running for over two miles. And he's been in a fight. He's been hit in the head. 
he finally just gives up. Honestly, the people that surrounded him didn't know who they had initially. They were just saving him for the cops to come and get him. They knew they had somebody. Had it been the bad people or other people, they'd have killed him right there. Without hesitation, the neighborhood, they'd have killed him. But they didn't know. And so I had very mixed emotions uh, coming up to the culmination of the case. I, I, I would tell my uh, wife, you know, I want him dead, but yet I want him alive. I wanted to spend time with him. I wanted to talk to him. So I had very mixed emotions as to how he was going to go down. And I'm, it, did, it, it went down the way it did. They, they got him. They were happy. They got reward money for it. They helped us out. Uh, he got made. Well, he was actually, we had an operation going to downtown LA around the Greyhound bus depot because we knew that was his hangout. And what we didn't expect, he was coming back from Arizona on a Greyhound bus. He came in and he made too many guys who shouldn't be there. So he went out the way the bus drove in, went down to a liquor store, saw his face on the front page of the paper, got on a local bus. And if he'd have made it eight miles, he'd have made it to his brother's house. But he got made on the bus by, by a passenger. And uh, so therefore... He got caught, got off, and started running. And that's where that's where his race started. And that's where it ended. And he said he was. He, he, he admitted later on he tired. He knew he was gonna. The end was near. Before we had any idea who we was, we told our boss the week before his arrest, we'll have him in two weeks. But we had no idea who he was. We'll have him in two weeks. He said he was tired. He knew he was getting close to being caught. But you knew you'd have him in two weeks. Based on what? Uh, just the way all everything was falling together, the way the cases were coming, the items we were recovering now, the informants coming forward. So, you know, we just had that uh, feeling that we'd have him within two weeks. Um, there is a story. You and uh, Frank Salerno, Frankie. I know he hates that, Frankie. Um, there was a, a burglary uh, and, well, I guess it ended up being an attempted murder. He tried to, 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 to kill uh, a woman there. She survived. You called up Frank and you went to investigate. I guess you had to get him up out of bed. He wasn't too pleased. Uh, tell, yes. me about, uh, tell me about that because there's a very interesting uh, um, ending to that story. There is. It's a storybook ending. They... Uh... We had been working, they had a uh, murder inside the jail. Frank was the acting lieutenant and he had to go, but I was his partner. If we were on a murder, so he, he says, Hey, why don't you come with us, you know, help us out. So a bunch of us went down and got home about three o'clock in the morning from the murder. And then they called me up at four in the morning to tell me that we got another case, the city of Sierra Madre. And I said, okay didn't bother me. It's another case. You know, they said, uh, you want us to call Frank or you want to call him? I said, I better call him because he's not going to be happy. I mean, he's been working his tail off just like I am, but this is, you know, and the girl hadn't died yet. So when I called him up and knowing that he was dog tired, I started calling him Frankie and I know he didn't like it. Just joking with him. Frankie, we got another case. Come on. And he thought I was lying and I went, and I kept laughing. Cause I thought it was funny cause I knew he was going to think I was lying. And I just said, okay, I'm going to go. 
I'll either be there by myself or you'll show up. And he just said, you better be there. Otherwise, you're mine. And I went down there, and it was the Whitney Bennett. She was a 16-year-old victim, and she was left for dead. He had uh, 42 inches of laceration, fractured skull, fractured jaw, fractured cheekbone, fractured arm, fractured ribs. There was ligature strangulation on her. He left her for dead. It was a bloody crime scene. He left the bloody via footprint on the car, on the comforter. And uh, that's the day that Frankie realized, yeah, we do have a serial killer. And so now it's all, all steam ahead. Well, you take that. We solved the case. It's over. And it's now time for Frank to retire from the sheriff's department. And he invites the Bennett family to his retirement. Whitney Bennett, the surviving victim, shows up at the retirement, meets Frank's son, and they ended up establishing a relationship. They are now married. They have three boys, two of which are going to Notre Dame playing football. Uh, the other one, I'm not sure if he's going to start Notre Dame or SMU. Uh, it's a beautiful family. Mike and uh, Whitney Bennett are just beautiful family, beautiful kids. It's it's amazing, um, just the paradox, how such a horrible, horrible um, situation turns out, you know, producing marriage and grandchildren and life is funny that way, isn't it? Um, what was the first thing you wanted to ask Ramirez when you when you got to finally interview him and see him face to face? I, I had no no. No questions in particular. It, you know, people ask me if I was afraid going in there because he was supposed to, he was in the devil worship. Was I nervous? You know, it's a serial killer. Uh, the realities are you, you look at somebody like uh, Joe Montana, the football player. I mean, he's just Joe Montana, the regular bud, the drinking fool at the bar. He sees his wife, his kids. He's got a family. But come Sunday, he puts on that helmet and it's game time. Nothing on his mind except for football and the victory. The day that I was walking in to see Richard for the first time, it was game day. I couldn't let anything get in the way. We had I knew I had a job to do. I knew what I wanted. I wanted him to talk. And he just let it go where it goes. And it went well. He escaped the gas chamber, died of cancer in, in 2013. Um, were you disappointed that he escaped? No, not, not at all. I was, uh, you know, last time I talked to him, he asked Frank, he said, are you going to go to my execution? Frank's response was, you damn right I am. And he said, Gil, what about you? Are you going to go to the execution? I said, I really don't know. You know, shit, I've been through combat. I've been through war. I've seen people dead. I've seen enough death already. Richard, you want me at your execution? I'll be there. You don't want me. I ain't going just to, for shits and grins. And he said he wanted me there. So I said, okay, I'll be there. But, you know, you always worry. Uh, I know I did that. Always worry about appeals and judicial error. And when we have to do this again on September 13th, um, it was, it was uh, June 7th of 2013. Yeah. Uh, I'm watching my grandson graduate from junior high school into high school my daughter who's a social media buff says dad dad ramirez is dead and i just said 
I really don't care. I'm here to see my grandson. And 40 minutes later, I turned my phone back on because by then we got rid of the beepers. And I turned my phone back on. And, and by the time I got home, I had about six television stations in front of my house. I did interviews all about what about he's dead. And the only thing I, I wasn't happy, you know, I'm not, uh, I'm not the man that pulls the trigger. I'm not the man that gave him the cancer. I'm just the man that doesn't have to worry about his appeals anymore. So I, I was happy. He'd been tried, convicted, lost all his appeals. and He's been sentenced to death and he died. It's over. How is retirement for you? I mean, after being involved in 400 mur- homicide cases, this incredibly high profile case, putting the pieces together the way you did that nobody has ever done. Is it, is retirement, I mean, do you, do you sometimes get the itch to get back in there and start? Oh, every, day. every day, give me, let me hear about a good case. I'm ready to go back to work. You know, I, I'm sitting here, even some of these programs that are on TV the other night, I remember I got a little upset with, I had a, my fifth, my 47 year old son and my 51 year old daughter were watching a case on television. And the guy beat the case. And they're saying, oh, you shouldn't have beat it. God, I feel so sorry for the family. He's dirty. He's guilty. And I had watched the case with some interest because I wanted to see how it came out. And I told him, you don't understand. That case never would have been, shouldn't have even been filed. It never would have been filed here in L.A. There was never enough evidence to say he did it. You can't say that the other guy didn't do it because... Five minutes after she's dead, he committed suicide. You don't know what happened. There were no other witnesses. You just can't do. And oh, but they knew more. They they knew better. So this stuff still gets my blood going. If there's a good case, <laughs> get it. I still get calls from other agencies. Uh, if I would go give them a hand, uh, I was honored, flattered. They called me to go back uh, back when BTK bind them, torture, kill them. I went back there. Uh, Wichita. Yeah. I went back there as a consultant. Uh, so I, I still get called and I do a lot of speaking all over the U S still. I was just a Fresno police department, small town police department. I think they have 13 people in their homicide bureau. They called, they asked for help. They wanted me to give them some, they wanted a class, you know, murder. They want to know how to investigate murders. And here's a, here's a, an entire Hispanic town, all Hispanic homicide investigators. And they have, a Hispanic, what they call their hero, you know, so it's made a difference in a lot of people's lives. So uh, I'll take the time. They flew hill, they flew their city plane down here, picked me up. I went up there for the day, give them a class. Uh, I enjoy talking to people. I still get called. And that's what keeps me busy right now. Lieutenant Carrillo, it's uh, been a real privilege and an honor and a pleasure uh, to meet you and to speak with you. And um, thank you so much. Uh, God bless you. God bless you and thank you for having me. A new Richard Serrett's Strange Planet drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday.